listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back. It's episode five of season five, and today we're going to be talking about the first president from Ohio, Old Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison, our ninth U.S. president. So we continue our season Ohio in the presidency. Today on William Henry Harrison versus the World, we will sit down with Ron Schaefer, author, historian, and journalist. Ron was a political reporter and the political features editor at the Wall Street Journal for 38 years. Hired right out of college, he was the editor of the, the Lantern, the college paper at The Ohio State University. And today we'll be talking about Ron's great book from 2016, The Carnival Campaign, about the 1840 presidential campaign. It was a campaign full of firsts and American political traditions that would carry on for now 180 years. And Ron will take us on the campaign trail with William Henry Harrison. He was the first Whig president in U.S. history. I'll find out what the hell a Whig actually is. Uh, and as well, so we'll talk about the, pre- the Harrison presidency, his death, his legacy, uh, when we talk with Jerry Landry, who joined us from his home outside Charlotte, North Carolina. Jerry is a historian and the host of the Presidencies of the United States podcast. Uh, but Jerry first came to our attention as the host of a little show called the William Henry Harrison podcast. Yes, an entire pod dedicated to the life and times of our ninth president. We are intrigued to see what this summer and fall's campaign is going to look like. What will the conventions be? Uh, will Trump be having his big rallies? Will Biden leave his Wilmington, Delaware basement? Will he even have to? Uh, this will be a, a landmark year for historians when they look back at the approach of the 2020 nominees. And much like 1840, one candidate was out having huge, massive rallies to the consternation of nearly half the country, while the other candidate let his supporters do his talking and didn't campaign at all. Presidential campaigns were really never the same after the 1840 campaign between North Bend, Ohio's William Henry Harrison and New York State's Martin Van Buren, the Democratic incumbent. You know, also one thing we really want to make sure we do is we've got to debunk this generations-old lie in American history that Harrison died of pneumonia because he gave the world's longest you know, inaugural address without wearing his coat or his hat or whatever. I'm just sick of of hearing that. So we'll dissuade you of that nonsense theory that has become really accepted fact in American history. We've been waiting to tell this tale since we read Ron's awesome book, The Carnival Campaign, when it came out actually last election cycle. So, so much of this history happens right here in Ohio. And we'll let you know why that 1840 campaign is still relevant when we look at, you know, our most recent presidential campaigns almost 200 years later. So we're going in the way, way back machine today to the campaign of 1840. It's the story of Tippy Canoe and Tyler II. It's episode five, William Henry Harrison versus the world. Our guest today, Ron Schaefer, author, historian, journalist, still writes freelance pieces for the Washington Post on a pretty regular basis. Like we said, he was a political reporter for the Wall Street Journal for 38 years. 
Ron joined us from his home in Virginia. Uh, he's also a pretty solid follow on Facebook, so uh, look for him out there. But a graduate uh, from Columbus, a graduate of the first class at Eastmore High, where he actually scored the first basket in the history of the Eastmore basketball program. Uh, he said that was more luck. He wasn't a great player. But a school that produced Archie Griffin, the only two-time Heisman Trophy winner and all-around great Ohioan. He grew up in, in Columbus and attended Ohio State. We asked Ron why Ohio and his state of Virginia claim the most presidents and, and really how they share one in common, the subject of today's show, William Henry Harrison. Uh, I know Ohio claims to be the state of presidents because they've had eight, I think. And Harrison was the first, but he actually was born in Virginia. Uh, he was b- born uh, in the next county from where I live in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, he was born at the Berkeley Plantation, and his father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And his uh, vice president, John Tyler, actually was born right down the same road. And uh, his father was uh, Thomas Jefferson's roommate at William and Mary. So Virginia counts Harrison as one of their nine presidents, so they claim to have the most presidents. But as I said, it all depends how you count it. Uh, Ohio also claims Benjamin Harrison, who was uh, Harrison's grandson, because he grew up at his grandfather's farm in North Bend, Ohio, but he actually was elected from Indiana. So it, it, it varies. I don't know why Ohio had so many presidents, but I do have a theory uh, on why we haven't had one since the 1920s with uh, Warren Harding. Uh, And that's because of Ohio's eight presidents, four have died in office. So, you know, maybe that scared off Ohioans from running for president. Harrison lived in Cincinnati, actually in North Bend, Ohio. It's about 14, 15 miles west of Cincinnati. If you took 50 west, a river road out of downtown Cincy, just follow the Ohio River and, and you'll run into North Bend. It's a town today of only about 800 Ohioans. And it's the site of the William Henry Harrison Tomb and Memorial which is actually operated by the Ohio History Connection. Uh, Harrison was a hero of the War of 1812, but he had slipped into relative obscurity. This is some 25 years after the war. We're talking about the campaign of 1840. We asked Ron Schaefer about General Harrison and his hometown of North Bend, Ohio. He, of course, was famous as uh, Old Tippecanoe. That's what everybody knew him by because, as you mentioned, he had this battle against the Native Americans in 1811 at the Tippecanoe River in Indiana, but he became a really national hero in the War of 1812. So after the war, uh, he was elected to Congress, and then he was elected to the Ohio State Legislature. He really wanted to be governor of Ohio, uh, but that didn't happen. So he got appointed to the U.S. Senate, and then he was appointed ambassador to Columbia, But finally, in 1829 or so, he went back to his farm in Ohio, North Bend, Ohio. Yeah, it's just west of Cincinnati on the North Bend of the Ohio River. Uh, He went there in 1791. He left medical school in Philadelphia when his dad died, and he joined the Army, and he was assigned to Fort Washington, which was in in the small village of Cincinnati in the Ohio Territory. And uh, so he he served uh, there uh, fighting the Indians and uh, negotiating peace treaties. And that's where he was. When he was nominated, he was working as the Hamilton County Clerk of the Court in Cincinnati. Pretty much been forgotten, although he had run, not run, he had been on the ballot in 1836 when the Whigs had uh, actually three different candidates running. 
but he had pretty much been forgotten, but he was still famous uh, as a as the hero of the War of 1812. Our second guest is Jerry Landry. Jerry is the host of the history podcast Presidencies of the United States. And Jerry and I have one thing in common, at least. Uh, we both host unique podcasts. I host the world's only Ohio history podcast, and Jerry once hosted the only William Henry Harrison podcast in the world. I checked. It still is. Uh, he retired from that show a few years back and moved on to his presidency show, which we very much recommend. But it's the deepest of, of deep dives into our founding fathers, their presidencies, but we'll expand from there over time. So, But we asked Jerry the questions on everyone's mind. Why start a William Henry Harrison podcast? So it's it's really odd. I've always been fascinated by Harrison. When I was a kid, used to have the old encyclopedias and I would drag them down. I'd start looking up something. I'd need to get another volume. And I always was interested in the presidents and Harrison just for some reason stuck out to me. And so as I learned more about him and learn more because he's so often dismissed, he's, if he's mentioned at all, it's one sentence. He was inaugurated. He died 30 days later. But when you start to look at his life and you start to look at who he was and, and all the things that he did, he's a fascinating figure. And so when I started thinking about podcasting from that, I've, I've since expanded to other presidents and, and the presidency in general. So I started the presidencies of the United States as an attempt to take a more in-depth look at each presidency. So each season is one presidency. And the the number of episodes varies, you know, for uh, George Washington, I believe it was 36 yeah, episodes right. total um, for John Adams, it was, I believe, 24, 25. And so I'm now in um, Thomas Jefferson's presidency. I try to release every other week. I also have some special episodes that come out, interviews, uh, special topics. But it's, it, if that doesn't tell you, you know, I started this in January of 2017, and I'm, I'm only up to <laughs> Jefferson. The subject of today's show, William Henry Harrison was the first Whig Party member to be the president of the United States. This is the 1840s, 16 years before the Republican Party will run its first candidate. Uh, beginning in the 1830s, the Whigs became one of the two major parties in American politics. We asked Jerry Landry just what the hell was a Whig and how did Harrison fit into that party? He is the first Whig to become president. Uh, the Whigs had actually run um, in the election before 1836, and Harrison was one of the candidates. But what they did was it was it, they established like these regional candidacies. So Harrison was on the ballot in like the Northwest and the, I believe the Mid Atlantic. Um, you have people like uh, Daniel Webster was up in the New England area, and so they they kind of split their vote amongst these four candidates the strategy was they thought that the, if they could split the vote enough it would get thrown into the house of representatives and they you know one of these candidates might have a chance um that didn't happen van buren ended up becoming president but harrison actually had a strong showing in in various regions so i think that was one of the reasons why he ended up 
coming to just being the, the candidate that they consolidated around in 1840. But the Whig Party in and of itself was a conglomeration. Part of what they struggled with in 1840 is that you have people who were from a defunct um, National Republican Party, which is more Henry Clay and, and his American system, which was more thinking of, you know, wanting to bring back a national bank, uh, internal improvement projects, um, more of, of a, a neo-federalist idea in that you also have this group that's called the anti-masons that was around for a bit they get drawn into this you get some people who are really i mean they're really democrats except that they are opposed to jackson andrew jackson and that's how you end up with uh john tyler in the Whig party because him and Henry Clay were on completely different worlds in terms of ideology because of their opposition to Jackson and Jacksonianism, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so it's hard to really define what the Whigs are. That's kind of the struggle that we see in the, the brief Harrison presidency and what we see in the Tyler presidency is, you know, you, you have this coalition that wins, but how do you keep them together? Jerry said, Harrison was one of three or four Whig Party candidates in the 1836 presidential. And Harrison was actually the runner-up. He won more than a quarter of the states in the Union, including Ohio, New Jersey, Indiana. Uh, and come 1840, the Whigs were determined to consolidate around one candidate. Many thought it would be Henry Clay, the famous senator of Kentucky. Clay had been the youngest speaker of the House. He started this new party and, and believed it was his turn to be president. As the Whigs met in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we asked Ron, just how did William Henry Harrison get the nomination? The oldest man ever at that point to be nominated. Well, they had this convention in Harrisburg, and uh, Henry Clay thought he was going to be the nominee. He, he had started the Whig Party. Uh, but uh, the trouble was, uh, uh, Clay, he was so well known. Uh, he, he, had, he had more baggage than the luggage rack at Port Columbus. He was a, a, a big name in politics. He had a lot of political enemies, and plus he was a slaveholder, uh, which would hurt him. So they, on the third ballot, they, after a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes maneuvering, they picked General Harrison from the War of 1812 because he was still famous. That was the good part. And the other good part was that nobody knew what he thought about politics because he had been out of politics for so long. So he was the safe candidate. Uh, especially because in those days, uh, presidential candidates didn't campaign and they didn't talk about their views. So he would just be known as the hero of the War of 1812. It was known as the Log Cabin and Hard Cider Campaign. That was the original slogan of, of the Harrison and Tyler ticket. But it came about by the Whigs actually leaning into an insult from the Democrats. We asked our guest Ron Schaefer about how the Log Cabin and Hard Cider Campaign came into existence? It really began uh, when he was uh, a soldier in Cincinnati. Uh, he met his uh, wife, Anna, <clears throat> and she was the daughter of the biggest landowner there. Uh, and he wasn't too crazy about her marrying a, a soldier. But anyway, they got married and uh, 
he sold them this little log cabin on the North Bend. And, and you know, nobody ever dreamed that that little log cabin would, would become part of a presidential campaign. And it really happened by accident. It's one of those things uh, where a negative campaign uh, rebounds against you. Uh, when Harrison was nominated, he was 67 years old, and he was the oldest man ever to run for president. Uh, so soon as he was nominated, and, and opposition uh, Democratic paper in Baltimore ran this article making fun of him as, as an old guy who would rather stay in his log cabin and drink hard cider. So this was an attack the Whigs didn't expect. So these two Whig strategists in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, one was a, a rich banker and one was a young newspaper editor, and they were thinking about, how, what are we going to do about this? And they finally said, well, why don't we just go with it? Because uh, the, the log cabin was the symbol of the American pioneers, and the hard cider was the drink of the common man. So the result was, the log cabin and hard cider campaign, and it really struck home with the average voters across the country. Harrison was known as Old Tippecanoe or Old Tip. You know, where exactly did that name come from? Harrison was an Indian fighter at the turn of the 19th century. He became a general and the governor of the Indiana Territory. So, you know, he was pretty good at it. He was known as Jefferson's Hammer in the early 19th century. He made and broke peace treaties in Ohio, Indiana, and fought Native American tribes along the way. And following the Treaty of Greenville in 1794, which basically made Native residents illegal in Ohio, the Ohio Territory as it was then, the fight began to intensify Western in Indiana and Western Ohio. We aren't going to sugarcoat his past. I mean, if you were in the U.S. Army in the early 19th century, or really any part of the 19th century, you almost for surely fought and killed Native Americans. Harrison would become famous for his generalship in the War of 1812 against the British, and the Native American uh, Alliance. But that really began in 1811 at the Tippecanoe River in Indiana, outside the new Indian village of Prophetstown. We're going to take you back to our Tecumseh episode back in Season 2, our, our episode Ohio vs. the White Man, to discuss the Battle of Tippecanoe. Tecumseh wasn't there, which is why the battle probably happens in the first place, but our guest on that show was Professor of History at Robert Morris University, and TV host of the Pennsylvania Public Television program, Battlefield Pennsylvania. Our friend Brady Kreitzer gives us the inside scoop on the battle that gave Harrison his name, Old Tippecanoe. Harrison is, I, I would say he's smitten by Tecumseh. Anyone who meets him is. And Harrison understands the power this guy has. And he knows that at this time, Tecumseh is going into uh, on a journey of recruitment for more warriors. He recruited the entire Great Lakes. Why not try Tennessee? Georgia, the Carolinas, Florida. Uh, that's the realm of the five nations of the South, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee Creek, and Seminoles. Why wouldn't they be responsive? They're being uh, disenfranchised too. He goes to the land of the of the midday sun. That's what the, the, the Indians call it. Uh, and this is for Harrison is his chance. He knows Tecumseh is gone. He knows only this, you know, sorcerer brother is in charge of the of the of the hundreds of warriors of Prophetstown, and he believes that this is the time to strike. If there is a battle, Tecumseh won't be there, uh, and it's very likely they can just force them out. Because uh, Tecumseh had told him, Tenskwatawa has very clear orders never to lead men into battle. That's not his thing. So you're going to see uh, William Henry Harrison write a letter to Washington. He's going to begin his march after he gets approval. 
Uh, they're going to get within about a mile of Prophetstown, and he's going to send a, an envoy with a white flag to tell the Indian warriors of Prophetstown, which was a temporary town. There was nothing there before. This was just their Woodstock, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells them to leave. They go back to Tenskwatawa, and Tenskwatawa says, listen, we're not going to leave, but we're not going to fight. I have clear orders. There was a group of Western Algonquian Indians, and we're not sure exactly what tribe, that say that's unacceptable. We came here to fight. And that was true. We didn't come here to bargain. We didn't come here to be slowly removed. We came here to fight. So they start to kind of pressure Tenskotawa. Let's go fight now. They're, they're a mile away. They're sleeping. We don't have as many people as they do, but we can strike them at night and surprise them. And that's a classic Indian tactic. Tenskwatawa finally caves. Tecumseh never would have caved to the warriors. And quite frankly, they probably wouldn't have pressed him the same way. Tenskwatawa puts a spell on the warriors that, that American bullets can never hurt them. Uh, that's not, the time will tell, that's not true. Um, and they lead a raid in the early hours in 1811. And the fight happens. The Americans are surrounded. They don't know how many warriors there are. Part of the reason the warriors are raiding them is because they don't have as many people as the Americans. The fight goes on too long. Indian raids are designed to happen quickly, do a lot of damage, and end quickly. And if they go on a long time, that gives the conventional army the advantage. The sun comes up, Harrison sees he has a tremendous numbers advantage. Uh, and the Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, it's, a, it's a disaster for the Indians. As it turns out, the American bullets can penetrate their skin. Uh, and many of the warriors turn and, and leave. Um, they don't be- believe in the cause anymore. Their spirit is broken. Tecumseh comes back and has a big blow up with his brother. And a lot of people kind of view that as the ending. But in a lot of ways, it's it's just round one. So we flash forward back to 1840. Harrison's opponent was the Democratic incumbent Martin Van Buren. Van Buren was Andrew Jackson's vice president and his chosen successor. But the Van Buren administration was plagued by the, the first major economic depression of the 19th century, the Panic of 1837. And his government was unable or unwilling to do anything to help the, stabilize the country's economy. We talked to Ron Schaefer about the vulnerable incumbent, Martin Van Ruin, as his Whig detractors would call him. Yeah, poor Martin Van Buren. Uh, he had been uh, he had been Andrew Jackson's vice president, and, and Jackson uh, served two terms, and then he backed Van Buren to, to replace him, and Van Buren won in 1836. He was our second shortest president. He was five six. Uh, the shortest was uh, James Madison, who was five four. Anyway, uh, unfortunately for Van Buren, uh, he got hit by the Panic of 1837. And that was the biggest. Uh, economic uh, decline. And so, of course, uh, Democrats at that time actually were more like today's Republicans, and they didn't believe in any government help. I mainly mean by that they believed in small government, uh, and they believed that the government should intervene in in big uh, times of uh, trouble. So anyway, uh, Van Buren didn't do anything to counter the record unemployment at the time. And to make matters worse, he would say things like, damn the panic. If people would work as hard as I do, there would be no panic. And this was uh, exactly uh, 
not something you would want to say during a presidential campaign. The Whigs knew how to party. People did drink a lot more in the 1840s than in the 2020s. They drank a lot more liquor. The Whigs decided to throw out the old campaign strategies of the earlier 1800s. And as we'll see, much of it happens in Ohio for two reasons. One, Ohio is a major swing state in elections, even at this point. And more importantly, Harrison was from Ohio. There were canals and trains, but travel was so much more regional in those days. And the Whigs you know, set up a rally on February 22, 1840 in Columbus, Ohio. And people come in the night before, huge parties and camp out or just you know, whatever hotel rooms they can get in Columbus. It was the Whig State Convention. This was the party that started it all. The idea that the Whigs were the people's party and that Harrison was the common man's candidate, it really comes from this giant fest in the capital city. They were gathered on the intersection of Broad and High Street, right where all the protests have been happening this summer. This is a, an old meeting spot for the masses. But this is before the current state house is even built. Uh, it wasn't built till 1857, and it was all dirt roads. It rained that night before. Uh, basically, everything was turned to mud. And a giant banner hangs across High Street that read, Harrison and Tyler, the pillars of reform. Ron Schaefer takes us back to that truly amazing party that was the Whig Ohio State Convention in February 1840. Yeah, up until now, uh, candidates uh, not only did uh, they not speak, but they didn't have big rallies. Uh, the only closest uh, thing to it was that uh, Jackson had some torchlight uh, parades that he had for his campaign. But this was really the first modern campaign with the rallies. These two guys who set the strategy on the log cabin and hard cider campaign also decided that instead of uh, having the traditional campaign, they would take the campaign, they said, down to the people. And the whole idea was just to forget about issues and, and just excite people. And that's what they did. And the, the plan was to start on George Washington's birthday in February of 1840 to have these rallies in cities across the country. But the biggest one was in Ohio. And then Ohio really became the center for this modern campaign. Uh, on right around Washington's birthday, they had this two-day convention in Columbus. And the people came from, they came from all over the state. Uh, Columbus had a population of about 6,000, but there were like 30,000 people there. Uh, and the streets were jammed, the bars were jammed, and if you couldn't get in the bars, they had free hard cider. So it was like a, a big party. And the second day, they had a big parade up High Street. It was it went like for miles, and they had things like uh, full-sized log cabins on wheels with people inside and raccoons running around on they had uh, Tippecanoe canoes that were 70 feet long on wheels. And there was a, a float with a, a full-size buckeye tree and a live eagle on the top. And reporters tried, I looked up newspaper articles and reporters actually said, I'm trying to write about this, but I don't know how to describe it because I've never seen anything like this before. So it was uh, it was an incredible parade uh, in Columbus, and it kicked off uh, the 1840 campaign. We throw around the word Buckeye to describe an Ohioan these days. We're called the Buckeye State. I root for the Ohio State Buckeyes. I really hope there's a football season this year. Uh, we've got a, just an absolutely dynamite team. Uh, Buckeye is used to describe Ohio. Uh, it was popularized in this campaign. In fact, we'll discuss with Ron Schaefer tons of sayings and phrases 
that entered the national lexicon uh, because of the Harrison campaign in 1840, a number of which we still use today. It did. Well, in this parade in Columbus, one of the features was this big ball that had been rolled in uh, from Cleveland about, uh, about 12 feet high, and it had slogans plastered all over it. And the idea behind the ball was that it could be rolled from town to town in these rallies. So this was the start of the phrase, keep the ball rolling. Uh, and one of the people who was there that day he was, a, was a young jeweler from Zanesville, a guy named Alexander Kaufman Ross. And he got so excited by this ball when he saw it, he went home and he wrote a song for his Tippecanoe Glee Club. They had glee clubs for the, this campaign, too. And he called this song The Great Commotion. And one line was Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And, of course, Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, became the Whig slogan for that year. And it's still the most famous campaign slogan in history. This campaign established Buckeye as the nickname of Ohio uh, in several ways, actually. Uh, there are hundreds of these campaign songs, more than any in history. And, and a lot of them refer to Harrison as the candidate from the Buckeye state. And, and the Buckeye itself was kind of the symbol of the campaign. And then finally, uh, in Zanesville, which was on the National Road across the country, now it's Route 40, uh, every day, uh, boys there would, would cut up branches from buckeye trees and make these canes that were known as buckeye canes. So travelers would stop there, buy these canes, and spread the name of the buckeye canes and buckeyes all across the country. So this campaign really is where buckeyes uh, come from. Oh, who has heard the great commotion, motion, motion, all the country through? It is the ball a-rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. For Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And with them will beat little Van, Van, Van is a used-up man. And with them will beat little Van. I mean, there's phrases that aren't even involved with Ohio uh, that were born out of this 1840 election that we still use today. We talk with Ron about other words and phrases that came out of this carnival campaign. Yeah, the 1840 created a, a lot of new phrases. It was amazing. Uh, like one, uh, Martin Van Buren uh, was from Kinderhook, New York, and he sometimes he was called Old Kinderhook. And so that led to the phrase, OK. At least it was one of the things that led to the phrase, OK. Then during, during this uh, economic panic, it, there was an Ohio lawmaker named John Bro, and he changed his vote on the bill, and he, and he explained it this way. He said, I have my bread and butter to look after. And this started the phrase, bread and butter issue. Another one was a, a, a stories about the campaign. Uh, Ohio was considered to be in the West at that time, and it said, the prairies are on fire and the whirlwind they reap will be cast west of the mountains. And that led to the phrase whirlwind campaign. One I loved was uh, Van Buren's um, secretary of war was a guy named Joel Poinsett. And he had been uh, America's first ambassador to Mexico. And uh, he saw something down there called the Christmas Eve flower uh, that had become popular in the U.S. Uh, when he came back and people called it uh, Poinsetta. General Harrison was in Columbus, staying across the street from the State House on his way to Perrysburg for a rally at Fort Meigs to commemorate his victory there in the War of 1812. 
This is in June of 1840. It was here. And I don't think Harrison knew he was making history, but we asked Ron Schaefer to recount the first campaign speech in U.S. presidential history. It took place at the National Hotel in Columbus, Ohio, on June 6, 1840. In those days, candidates, as I said, didn't give didn't give speeches. It was considered totally improper and totally conceited. So you just didn't do it. I mean, Harrison didn't attend the convention. Candidates didn't attend the convention. He didn't go to these rallies that had started in, in Columbus. He, he ran the traditional campaign. He stayed home and he answered letters from uh, voters who would, who would write him. And one day, a, a Democratic voter uh, said, uh, you know, he had written Harrison and he gotten a response, but it didn't come from Harrison. Uh, it, it came from some uh, committee. And uh, it was sort of the, the first uh, precursor to the email scandals. Uh, the Democratic papers uh, jumped on it and they said, oh, the, the, Demo- the Whigs uh, don't even let the old guy talk for himself. That He was kept in a cage and they called him General Mum. Well, this really ticked off old Tip. And so uh, one day he got this invitation to, to speak at a celebration of uh, his old battle in Fort Meigs. Uh, near Toledo, up near Toledo, and so he accepted the uh, he accepted the invitation, and uh, it was a two day trip, and also in keeping with his uh, campaign image, he left his silk hat at home and he packed his farmer's clothes to give this speech. Anyway, Columbus was halfway, so he stopped there. He stopped overnight at the National Hotel at Broadna High Street, and later that was the Neilhouse Hotel, and the next morning he was leaving. And uh, as he came out, there was a, a lot of people standing outside just to see him. So he, without really planning to, he, he launched into what was the first campaign speech in history. And he mainly defended himself against uh, these uh, charges. So right there in Columbus, Ohio, uh, on June 5th, 1840, uh, Harrison gave the first speech ever by a presidential candidate. So he made history right there in Ohio. The date was June 11th, 1840. Harrison arrived in Perrysburg, Ohio, in, in northwest Ohio, just outside of Toledo, to make his speech that this time he knew would be historic. There were some 35,000 people there to meet him. He would give a speech that many presidents would unknowingly model in years to come. I quote from the speech, See that the government does not acquire too much power. Keep check upon your rulers. Do this and liberty is safe, unquote. And still certainly applies today. Well, after Columbus, he continued on his way. Uh, He got on a train and then then a boat and he got up to Fort Meigs. And uh, there there were like thousands, like probably tens of thousands of people there. They had all come in the night before and they had a big party and he spoke in this open uh, field uh, near the old battlefield, and he gave a two-hour speech, and he was very theatrical. Uh, he, he, first thing he did, he, he saw an old, uh, an old soldier, an old general sitting in the back, and he had somebody carrying him up to the front so he could hear what he said. And then he would go talking, and at one point he stopped and said his mouth was dry, and some. Then somebody handed up this bottle of hard cider and he took a big swig of it. 
so he was a kind of a showboat uh, it, uh, as he started out on this speaking tour. And then he continued to make these speeches uh, as he went back to North Bend, Ohio. And it was quite shocking. I mean, uh, the papers, the opposition papers, were just criticized him all over the place. Uh, they, they said he was like going from town to ha- town, uh, behaving like a blubbering child. It was something that uh, nobody had ever seen before. Donald J. Trump took the Harrison approach in 2016. He wasn't doing the grassroots door-to-door campaign, but doing giant rallies. We'll see if he's able to do the same thing this year with the virus. But the U.S. population in 1840 is about 17 million people. That's a couple million less than the population today of the state of New York. So when we talk to Ron about the size of these rallies, it's pretty incredible. The rally he has in Dayton, Ohio, has 100,000 people. I mean, if you multiply that by the number of people in the country today, it'd be like 2 million people uh, in terms of, you know, the population reach. I mean, those are peak Obama numbers. He had like 100,000 plus at a rally in Denver during the 08 campaign. Uh, Go back and listen to our last episode, episode four, Ohio versus the campaign, to learn more about that historic campaign of Obama v. McCain. But we talked to Ron Schaefer about how Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, captivated the country and how almost all of that history and all those huge rallies took place right here in Ohio. Oh, yeah, the reaction to Harrison's speeches was just uh, incredible. People loved it. Uh, They, you know, these speeches were all in Ohio. He gave about two dozen speeches because of the uh, travel limitations. You had to go by stagecoach and everything like that. All these speeches were in Ohio, and they drew amazing crowds. Uh, in Dayton, you mentioned Dayton, he drew 100,000 people. 100,000 people at a time the U.S. population was a lot uh, less than it was now. And, and the amazing thing was that, you know, with that many people, they really couldn't hear him uh, for the most part. They just wanted to see him. I, it was like seeing the Beatles. And he was, again, very theatrical. Sometimes he would ride his horse right up to the stand uh, before he gave his speech. People came not only from Ohio, they came from all over the region. Uh, there was one uh, guy who was, uh, came all the way. He rode his horse from Indiana uh, just just so he could look and, and hear Harrison. Uh, the only problem was he said that while he was looking up in the face of Harrison, somebody picked his pocket. So the pickpockets also love these speeches. Some 80 years before the 19th Amendment, the Whig Party had the first instances of women joining a political campaign in large numbers. That includes even making speeches on behalf of the Whig candidates. It wasn't the participation we would see in modern times, obviously, but it was the first large-scale inclusion of women in presidential politics. Yeah, the Whigs decided to to recruit the support of women. Uh, as you say, they, they couldn't vote, but uh, the Whigs knew they could really uh, persuade their husbands and boyfriends how to vote. And there were some single women who wore these sashes that said, Whig husbands or none. So they really put the really put the pressure on their boyfriends, and plus at these big parades, uh, the Whigs invited women to attend because they wanted to have the women in the in the parades. So they handed out these white handkerchiefs for the women to wave at the big rally, and the the Whigs needed these women also uh, because 
these were people came in from all over and, and they provided food. They needed women to cook these tons of food for these big rallies. Uh, one of the ones I loved uh, that they, they liked in a favorite was a, a, a stew made of squirrel with vegetables. Uh, it doesn't sound too appetizing, but it was called burgoo. But the women, they did more than cook. Uh, some women started giving speeches. Uh, they started writing pamphlets. Uh, one of these women who got involved was Mary Todd, who was dating Abe Lincoln at the time. And this was, this again, was, was quite shocking. The papers criticized a lot of these women. And they said that they should stay home and make pudding and take care of their husbands. But they kept going. And, and one of my favorite quotes I ran across was a, a story from Springfield, Illinois. Uh, one day at a, a Whig rally there, the horses stampeded dangerously, and a woman was cried out saying, if any are to be killed, let it be the ladies, for they can't vote. I am greeted with a hostile press, the likes of which no president has ever seen. Uh, the closest would be that gentleman right up there. They always said, Lincoln, nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. We play that quote from a couple months ago from President Trump because Harrison made a similar uh, mistake, a, a quote, during his campaign. He's being attacked in the Democratic press, and he said on the campaign trail, and I quote, I'm the most persecuted individual now living, unquote. Of course, he's forgetting the millions of African slaves in the country's south. Uh, he would have you know, been destroyed for making such a statement today. He was pilloried uh, even back then. But I bring up that to just show the mudslinging character assassination. It's not new in presidential campaigns. All these changes in campaigning were not well received across the country by Democrats. The fact that he was having these rallies, uh, he was attacked by Democrats, and they made all kinds of charges that we would still see today. Adultery, sexual misconduct, profanities. Uh, we talked to Ron just about the ugliness of the 1840 campaign and how it was directed at William Henry Harrison. Yeah, there were a lot of nasty charges in 1840. Now, that 1840 wasn't the first campaign that had those kind of things. That really started in, in the first uh, camp competitive campaign between John Adams and Tom Jefferson. But uh, anyway, in 1800, the uh, Democrats uh, came after Harrison with everything. They said he was a coward, that he had hid in the woods during battles with the Native Americans. They said he had fathered a child with a Winnebago woman. They said they, he had assaulted a, a young woman at his farm. Uh, they said he was a drunk and he used shocking profanity. So Harrison responded to most of these charges. Uh, he, he said he never had sex with that woman at his farm. Uh, he said he had never even met anyone from the Winnebago tribe. And he said, uh, when you're fighting Native Americans, the last place you would want to hide would be in the woods. As for the shocking profanity, uh, basically that stemmed from somebody uh, heard him telling somebody they were a damn scoundrel. And he actually didn't drink much uh, because his uh, son had died of uh, alcoholism. Uh, the only charge that was uh, probably true, well, that was true, uh, stemmed from the campaign's uh, image. Uh, this was the first image campaign. And the image was that uh, Harrison was a poor man living in a log cabin. Well, actually, he lived in a mansion. 
uh, that that little log cabin uh, that his father-in-law had sold to him, uh, he had expanded into this huge house because he had 10 kids. Uh, and, and plus, his so-called farm was this gigantic state. And he, he didn't even drink hard cider. So, um, but as you know, this wasn't the last time that somebody who lived in the mansion ran as a champion of poor people. But uh, Harrison wasn't exactly the poor man they portrayed him as. In 1840 was a much larger electorate than in previous elections. Still no African Americans allowed to vote, uh, obviously still no women, but there's twice as many people voting in 1840 as compared to just eight years earlier uh, in Andrew Jackson's re-election campaign. Ron explains the massive turnout in the Electoral College breakdown. Uh, Harrison would be named the ninth U.S. president winning a big Electoral College victory, uh, but only 150,000 votes separated him and Van Buren in the popular vote. One factor behind this whole campaign for the Whigs was that this was the first election when uh, most adult males could vote. Uh, originally, you had to be landowners and, and uh, other restrictions. So they, that's why they decided to go for the mass audience with the rallies and, and try to attract uh, the, the masses uh, to vote for Harrison. We only white landowners, uh, no women, uh, only men but more men than had been uh, allowed to vote in the past uh, elections. The whole campaign was, was uh, built around uh, drawing a huge uh, voter turnout. And so it came down to the election. And, and in those days, it wasn't one election day. The elections were held over several days. So it took a, a long time for the results to kind of dribble out. Like, like Van Buren was sitting in the White House waiting for the returns. And uh, he was actually uh, sitting for his portrait the day that a messenger brought in the, the final results from New York, and, which he lost. And as soon as he lost New York, his home state, he knew he had lost election, and, and which he did. Uh, Harrison won big in the Electoral College. Uh, he won, Harrison won the Electoral College vote by 234 to 260. Uh, but the popular vote was a lot closer. It was like 52% to 47%. Harrison won Ohio, of course, uh, but he lost his birth state of Virginia. Uh, he also lost in Illinois where Lincoln had campaigned for him. But the campaign had a big impact because the turnout was 81%. 81% of the voters uh, today were lucky to get 50%. And so these big rallies had, had clearly had an impact on the voter turnout. Rejoined by Jerry Landry from the William Henry Harrison podcast to discuss the much, much talked about inauguration of William Henry Harrison. This is March 4th, 1841. Harrison makes the long journey from Cincinnati to Washington, D.C. And Harrison's speech was said by some to be at least over two hours. And Jerry makes the point that Harrison's long speech was really to prove a point. That he wasn't too old. That he wasn't dumb. Uh, that he was up to it. You know, It's an argument that's being used against Joe Biden this year. Uh, Harrison was the oldest president ever elected. At 68, he would be the oldest elected until Ronald Reagan's election in, in 1980, a record he held for 140 years. But President Trump is now the oldest to be inaugurated for the first time, 
and he would be the oldest president ever uh, ever elected if he wins. Speaking of Trump, there, there's a hint of Make America Great in Harrison's inaugural speech, but his, his reference point is actually to an actual time in his life that existed. Uh, Harrison is talking about the founders. He knew these men. With the panic of 1837, many people thought the best years of the United States were behind them. Harrison got his original army commission from George Washington himself in 1791. He was known as Jefferson's hammer in the battles against the Native Americans. Jerry talks to us about why Harrison still holds the record for the longest inaugural speech. And and what did he talk about for that long? We didn't have TV. We didn't have radio. Forms of entertainment were, were hard to come by. And so speeches and especially like campaign speeches, it became an all-day event. It became this, you know, you, you, you bring everybody together, you bring some food, you have a picnic, and then you listen to this oration, and speeches could go on for four hours or more. Um, I found this, it really wasn't that uncommon at the time. The inaugural speeches were typically a bit shorter and and especially like Harrison's is is still to date and probably going to hold that record for the longest. But part of that was because he felt he had something to prove. So in the campaign, he had been portrayed by Democrats as being a puppet on the sidelines. That really it was the the Whig managers. It was Henry Clay. It was Daniel Webster who were just telling him what to do, and they're they were the ones really in charge. And he had to prove, no, I'm in charge. I'm going to be the president. Also, you have the age question. He's older. Is he really going to be up to this? So he wants to prove, yes, I am capable of being president. And so he ends up developing the speech. And and like you said, Daniel Webster did help him with the speech. Harrison was really focused on this this idea of wisdom through experience, of – a commitment to ideals of liberty and public service. And he, he tried to exemplify that in the speech and especially considering where the nation was at the time. So soon after Martin Van Buren had um, come to office in 1837, uh, we had a financial panic, as they called them, a, a depression. The economy was not doing well. It was, it was one of the, the biggest downturns in American history to that point. And so there were lots of fears. There, there was a, a lot of anxiety in the public consciousness. So you see Harrison with the speech trying to project this confidence. And that was part of what he brought to the campaign trail. You know, here I am, this general, this proven leader of men, but also I come from a generation that I knew the founders. I knew Washington. I knew Jefferson. I want to bring us back to that place. And it's something that we even hear in campaign rhetoric in the modern era. You know, let's, let's get back to that bygone era and, and those ideals. And you do see that in his speech. He really, in the speech, tries to point out how he and, and really most of the Whig party agreed that Jackson had taken things too far. Jackson had been such a dominating force on the Washington landscape that he had overstepped the bounds of the presidency. He had 
acted in ways that were flirting with unconstitutionality. But you also see in his speech this, this interesting part um, that he said he was going to push to prevent public officers from interfering in elections. It was seen that, that Jackson had started this spoil system of using the authority of the executive government to influence the political landscape in a way that, again, Whigs had a problem with. And the main reason they had a problem with it was that it worked against them for so long. You have Harrison really firmly saying with this speech, I'm going to lead us back to the right path. The Whigs' first crack at the presidency is off to a promising start. We asked Jerry the tough question, what exactly would a Harrison presidency have looked like? And was there anything he was able to get done in his one month in office? In terms of his his brief presidency, and again, this is so, it, it's different from where we're at nowadays. At, at that time, every office in the executive branch, and, and that goes down to like postmasters, were technically appointed by the president. Presidents, whenever they came to office, were just swarmed by office seekers from people from all over the nation. So much of his time was spent dealing with that. You even see towards the end of the the 19th century, still having new presidents, having to deal with a swarm of office seekers. Harrison did have a few key points that I think would have been seen as markers of what his presidency would have been. There's this idea kind of floating around in the Whig circles that the president should basically be one of many. Basically, the president would appoint the cabinet. And in terms of his cabinet, he actually had a pretty solid cabinet. So he he had Daniel Webster as Secretary of State, Thomas Ewing of Ohio as Secretary of the Treasury, uh, John Bell of Tennessee as Secretary of War, John J. Crittenden, as Attorney General, Crittenden was an, a close associate of Henry Clay's. You know, he had a pretty solid cabinet, geographic balance, um, kind of a balance of kind of different figures, different factions of the, the Whig Party. You get a sense that Harrison may have been able to bring the Whigs together. On March 20th, he had Secretary of State Webster issue a circular to all the executive departments asserting that governmental employees could not be forced to support the administration's party in elections, either through giving of their time or donations. So again, we we see he's trying to curtail the spoil system that's developing. In the Jackson administration, you would have even like postmasters who were required to donate to the party and to the campaign effort, were basically told, be sure to tell folks, vote for Jackson, vote for the Democrat. And Harrison saw this as wrong. Harrison saw this as, you know, this isn't fair play. These are public servants who are supposed to serve everybody. They shouldn't be campaigning when they're serving the public. And they shouldn't be forced to support any campaign. However they vote is however they vote. But they shouldn't be forced into supporting my administration or anybody else when it comes to campaigning. Harrison did not die from giving a long inaugural speech in the cold and the rain without his hat or his jacket. He did those things, um, and it's what many people still to this point uh, think, but it's time that we debunk that because it's simply not true. He didn't die uh, for a month after that speech, and he was only sick for a few days before he passed. 
doesn't take a doctor to understand that his death was different than the popular understanding of a cold at his inauguration that turned into pneumonia. Jerry Landry offers a different and much more likely cause of his death. Uh, it's a cause that, that many people have been looking into. It's a cause that we covered late in our fourth season. That cause is water. Water most likely killed William Henry Harrison. Tainted water at the White House. Go back and listen to our episode, Ohio versus Water, uh, last season to learn how Columbus, Ohio, thanks to the death of a prominent politician from its you know, tainted water, uh, led you know, the world in revolutionizing water treatment. That was a, a fun episode again, Ohio versus Water, last year about Mark Hanna. Jerry tells us how Harrison really died, so we can all stop saying it was from his inaugural speech and it's from the cold. So he was inaugurated on March 4th. He died at the beginning of April. He was president for a month. He wouldn't have suffered from pneumonia for a month. And indeed, we have in the record, he was attending meetings. He had folks over. He would go to the farmer's market himself and shop. He was seen as being out and about perfectly fine. Water sanitation was not, it, it wasn't really practiced like water was in many ways seen as dangerous because it would contain bacteria, it would contain you know, things that, that would make people sick. But you still need it water. You need water for, for washing and, and they try and boil it, whatever. But water was not nearly to the standards that we have in the modern era. To make matters worse, there have been more recent studies done, you know, A, in terms of looking at the topography of D.C. at the time and looking at possible causes. So the water supply for the White House was actually downhill from where the city dumped their refuge. So basically they were dumping their trash. This trash would seep into the ground and into the water table. For most people, you know, it, it might make them sick, but it wasn't necessarily life-threatening. But if you already had a compromised immune system or if you were older, then it, you were more susceptible. And we see this with numerous presidents. So not just Harrison, but James K. Polk, even though Polk was the youngest president to that point, he works himself to death in the four years that he's president, and he dies soon after leaving the presidency. Andrew Jackson, before Harrison, for the majority of the time that he was president, he was very sickly. Zachary Taylor ended up dying prematurely, but he was older. You know, you, you see all these instances, and so it's really seen that this, this bacteria, it developed into what we now know of as kind of a type of typhoid fever, that that was more, more than likely the cause. The problem is, and, and why it's pneumonia has been the thing that killed Harrison, medicine at the time, they really didn't have that great of a knowledge. You know, it was, it was still in its infancy of, of our medical knowledge and understanding. And pneumonia was kind of a catch-all. Well, okay, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. We'll just say he had pneumonia. And so that's what's on his death certificate. But they really didn't understand how to treat him. They did, really didn't understand what was going on. And in fact, most of the treatments that he was prescribed, and it's just awful. Um, it, in many ways, it probably contributed more to his death than even the bacteria um, 
what he needed was to build up his strength and you would have things like bloodletting going ahead and um you know flushing him out in in all ways and as disgusting as that sounds he was prescribed mercury just all these things that would further weaken his immune system instead of build it up not as clear when Harrison died who would be the president. John Tyler, his vice president, was named acting president, but Tyler just assumed the role entirely, despite some people calling for a new election or questioning his assumption of that role. Now we have the the 25th Amendment passed in 1967, following the last death of a president, JFK. But back then, it was not so obvious to Americans what happens when a president dies in office. Jerry breaks down the fallout from the first president to ever die in the White House. This is the first president who died in office. There was a lot of uncertainty, perceived ambiguity about does the vice president actually become president or does the vice president just, is he just an acting president? Does he really assume the entire office? Or does he just, he's kind of a, a, a placeholder. And this starts the, the raucous three years and 11 months of John Tyler's presidency because John Tyler asserts, no, I'm president. I am completely president. The president is dead. Now I'm assuming the office completely. Whig leaders, and in particular, again, Henry Clay, they see this as yet again an opportunity. Okay, well... We'll just say he's the acting president and we'll have more of a say-so in, in what happens with the administration. But again, Tyler, I was the one elected as vice president. None of you were elected as president or vice president. And so it establishes that precedent. Now, um, I believe eight instances where yeah. the vice president has assumed the presidency upon the death of the, the president and Tyler sets that all the powers devolve to that office. As we close this episode, uh, we visit with author Ron Schaefer one last time to discuss why his book was hailed uh, by so many critics in 2016 as still being relevant to today's elections. The election of 1840 was the first modern presidential campaign. We talked to Ron Schaefer about why this election 180 years ago still reverberates today. Well, when I started writing this book, I had no idea uh, who the presidential candidates would be in 2016, but it turned out to be uh, quite relevant to the to the campaign uh, for for several reasons. Uh, one, as we mentioned, it was about uh, somebody who uh, lived in a mansion and ran as the champion of the working men, uh, as uh, Donald Trump did in uh, 2016. Second, the 1840 campaign was the first campaign to involve women. And, of course, the Democratic candidate was uh, was Hillary Clinton, which was uh, something that these women had had dreamed of uh, would happen someday. But the main thing was that uh, you can't imagine a presidential campaign today without presidential candidates speaking. I mean, you'd like to imagine that. But it, it just wouldn't happen. That started with William Henry Harrison in Columbus, Ohio. 
the other thing that all, all uh, modern campaigns have, of course, are these big rallies. And that started uh, with the uh, presidential campaign of 1840. So, I considered the 1840 campaign to be the first modern campaign because it's just like the ones uh, we have today. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation is Ron Schaefer, our guest's 2016 book The Carnival Campaign how the rollicking 1840 campaign of Tippy Canoe and Tyler II changed presidential elections forever. Schaefer, an uh, Ohio State graduate and a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his decades of political journalism at the Wall Street Journal, uh, he's written the definitive book of the 1840 election. So click the link in the show notes, uh, buy the Carnival campaign. You won't be disappointed. We really enjoyed it. We've read it once. It's also on Audible. Uh, We actually listened to it again in preparation for our interview with Ron. Uh, We talked to Ron Schaefer about his research in writing this book, and also he tells us a a crazy story. Uh, How is it possible that John Tyler, Harrison's vice president and successor, still has two living grandchildren? Well, thank goodness for the Internet. Uh, It it has changed research uh, in an amazing way. I really focused on trying to find as many first sources as I could, uh, especially there was a newspaper that the that the Whigs put out uh, that was just about the campaign. It was called the Log Cabin Newspaper, uh, and the editor was Horace Greeley. Plus, there were all kinds of other newspapers. I could read stories from 1840. Uh, the big Columbus newspaper was the Ohio Statesman. Plus, there are a lot of books, including there was one book by that young Harrisburg uh, editor. Uh, When he got older, he wrote a biography, and he wrote about how they dreamed up this campaign. So there were only two people in that room when they created this famous campaign, and I felt like I was a fly on the wall listening to how these two guys created the campaign. And, and, And also, there were a lot of famous writers who lived at that time, and they wrote books that at least mention the 1840 campaign. Uh, a lot of Harrison supporters included uh, guys like Edgar Allan Poe, Washington Irving, uh, and uh, Walt Whitman also uh, was writing uh, at that time. And then John Quincy Adams uh, wrote, had a diary. So there was a lot of information in there about that. So there are a lot of firsthand accounts. Since both Harrison and Tyler were from the Williamsburg area, there are a lot of private family papers in the libraries that uh, women marry. Uh, I even found a diary by uh, Harrison's granddaughter who had a detailed description of the farm at North Bend uh, where she lived when she was growing up. I did visit Harrison's birthplace at Berkeley Plantation, which is right down the road from me. And Tyler's, uh, 
home of where he lived after the presidency, which is also right down the road from me, uh, is interesting. He called it Sherwood Forest. He called it that because the Whigs, after he became president, he vetoed so many Whig bills that they kicked him out of the party. So he, he was an outlaw like Robin Hood. And I actually got a tour of it by uh, it, the house is owned by uh, Tyler's grandson. I, I mean, grandson. Tyler was born in 1791. He has two living grandsons. Yeah, so Tyler has living grandchildren. It's insane. He remarried uh, late in his life, a woman he met actually at the end of his presidency. And, and he had children in his 70s. Uh, and his son had children in his 70s. Uh, for example, President uh, Tyler you know, took office in 1841. I mean, looking at even like Teddy Roosevelt, who was president in 1908, some 70 years later. Uh, and his last grandchild died, I want to say, in like 2000, 2001. I mean, anyways, it's 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 nuts. But thanks to, to our guest, Ron Schaefer. Look for his great articles uh, this election year in the Washington Post. Uh, and go check his book out. Like we said, there's a link in the show notes. Or go pick it up on Audible. Uh, and thanks to Jerry Landry. Check out his uh, podcast, Presidencies of the United States. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, we have a link to his show as well. Uh, if you're into Washington and Jefferson, uh, give it a listen. And ju- just a warning about some of these founding fathers with all these statues coming down uh, and non-Confederate statues coming down. I mean, tear down any Confederate statue you want. Fine with it. But I do warn you, you know, where does people ask, well, where does this end? Um and, you know, I would say, does does it end with our founding fathers, Washington and Jefferson? I'd say you're next on that list if, if we keep going with this. Uh, you know, some of these slave-holding founding fathers, I, I do wonder if they'll survive this, this phenomenon of statue removal. Um, anyways, I, I digress. I don't disagree with all of it. But that's a discussion over a, a beer or two between some historians. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, next episode, we will tackle... Probably the most controversial election in U.S. history, the election of 1876 and Central Ohio's only president, Rutherford B. Hayes. We'll discuss whether Hayes stole that election, why he is not solely responsible for the end of Reconstruction, as, as has been hung on him for over a century. Uh, we got great guests for that show, and, and we'll point out the positives and negatives of the Hayes presidency uh, in a fairly similar time to, to our time now. I think you'll find more positives in his presidency than negatives, although he's not highly ranked. Uh, But that's next time. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we will see you in a couple weeks for Episode 6. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.